This is episode 260 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. Get access to over 150 additional episodes not available on public listening platforms when you join us on patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. Hi, I'm George Monger. I'm the author of Marriage Customs of the World, a two-volume survey of marriage customs throughout the world, funnily enough. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. There's a great story about a John Warburton uh, in the 18th century who said he had dozens of play scripts, but almost all were lost because his cook used the play scripts to line pie pans and burned them up. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. Whether it's a diary entry or a side note in a ledger or account book, history leaves us records of plays that were performed during Shakespeare's lifetime. But their scripts never survived to the present day in any form that's recognizable as a complete play. Other than the occasional snippet of a line or two here or there, we can't read these plays and we certainly can't perform them. But we do know that they were real and that they had a place in the life of William Shakespeare. This entire group of work is called collectively Lost Plays, and even the Bard himself has a few titles that we know he wrote, but we no longer have anything but a passing record to tell us their contents. Researching and cataloging the collection of historical breadcrumbs that piece together a story of a lost play is the purpose of Lost Plays Database, which is an online collection of the records and research being done into the theatrical works now lost to history. Their database records plays from as early as 1570 and as late as 16. Our guest this week knows better than most the history of Lost Plays because she's one of the editors at the Lost Plays database and a pioneer in the field of repertory study. We are delighted to welcome Rosalind Knudsen. Rosalind Knudsen is Professor Emerita of English at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock and the author of The Repertory of Shakespeare's Company, 1594 to 1613, as well as Playing Companies and Commerce in Shakespeare's Time. She is co-editor with Kurt Mellenkoff on Christopher Marlowe, Theatrical Commerce and the Book of Trade. Her essays have appeared in publications including Shakespeare Quarterly, English Literary Renaissance, Shakespeare Survey and Medieval and Renaissance Drama in England. You can find out more about Rosalind and her work in the links in today's show notes. So stay tuned at the end for the link for where to find that. Hello, Rosalind. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life. Hi, how are you? Good to be here. I'm so glad to have you here. I'm excited to explore lost plays. And I think I want to know how a play becomes lost in the first place. Well, the most obvious is that it doesn't get printed. Printed plays tend to survive. Just consider what would have been lost Without the first folio in 1623, uh, we wouldn't have Comedy of Errors. We wouldn't have Two Gentlemen of Verona, All's Well That Ends Well, 
and named Cleopatra and so on. So, of course, printed plays can be lost. And we'll talk later about one of Shakespeare's plays that appears to have been printed, but is lost and, of course, is still questioned as being his. But printing's the safest way. In most cases, we're lucky to have a single play, um, single copy, a single printing of a play. But every now and then we get lucky. And with a play like Cambyses, we have three printings in 1570, 1585, 1595. So that's just absolute gold, um, particularly if those plays, if those copies have variations. Uh, the next most Thomas Haywood was asked why more of his plays had not survived. And he answers in the epistle to his um, English traveler in 1633 by saying that many of them, by shifting and change of companies, have been negligently lost. Here we see the good fortune of Shakespeare's plays having stayed in the same hands, both by his membership in the Chamberlain's King's Men and their own survival as a company over a long period of time. When Haywood mentions changing one company for another, uh, he also uh, talks about or implies companies moving from one playhouse to another. Um, as I said, the Chamberlain's men stay together and pretty much the same playhouse or just the two. The Admiral's men going from the Rose to the Fortune uh, are an example of an opportunity for plays once on file uh, to fall through the cracks. But there were also disasters. The globe burned in 1611, what must have been uh, burned as well as the playhouse itself. Uh, there was an attack on the Phoenix Playhouse by apprentices in 1617. That too, um, plays must have been lost. Even plays that are in the hands of collectors get lost. There's a great story about a John Warburton. Uh, in the 18th century, who said he had dozens of play scripts, but almost all were lost because his cook used the play scripts to line pie pans and burned them up. Greg's got an article called Bakings of Betsy uh, on that. Those items would, of course, be worth millions now, uh, and some because included on Warburton's list were uh, Maiden's Holiday, which been, is, has been attributed to Marlowe, and a few that have been attributed to Shakespeare, Duke of Humphrey, Henry I, and the vaguely referred to a play by Will Shakespeare. So imagine the money there. Matt Eagle uses metaphors from paleontology, fossil field, mudslide, to convey how indebted we are to the playlist that survive because a man's memorandum book uh, survives containing, you know, five years of performances and another five uh, of payments for plays. That, that's Henslow's diary, of course. It makes it sound like, I mean, we're talking about lost plays that got lost entirely, but it makes it sound like, at least in some places, there are pieces of plays yep. where we know this was part of something, but all we have is this little section. Does that happen as well? That happens too. Um, a, a fragmentary uh, survivor, a survival. The kind of parallel to that is that some plots of play survive. In other words, other kinds of paperwork that go with 
a play being written and put together and put on stage. So what are some of the historical records we have today that tell us about these lost plays? You talked about Thomas Haywood's writings, but what other places do we hear about plays that we maybe don't have complete copies of? Well, The Mother Load is, of course, the diary that Philip Henslow kept over a 10-year period, a little bit longer than that, but the playwright stuff is about a 10-year period from 1592 to 1603. The diary is invaluable not only because of the number of play titles named, but also the span of consecutive years, um, as I say, a decade. And the number of companies named, therefore allowing those of us in my field to compare repertories, what one company had and what another uh, company had. But also by his keeping the diary over the same years that Shakespeare himself was an active playwright. So it invites all kinds of speculation, wild usually on my part, of what Shakespeare's companies must have been doing if this is what Henslow's, uh, the companies at Henslow's, Henslow's Rose Playhouse uh, must have been doing. Uh, we also have a set of plots that survive. Companies, when they were getting ready to mount a play, would uh, put together a plot, essentially an outline uh, of the play. Uh, and we have about eight of these plots that survive. Not all of them are from lost plays, but some of them uh, are. Uh, and uh, the, the one that um, uh, you hear about the most is a plot for a play called um, The Second Part of the Seven Deadly Sins. Uh, and one reason it is more well known is that this play itself was assigned to Shakespeare's company. Uh, but a couple of the other plays uh, that we have plots for, but nothing else, a uh, play called Dead Man's Fortune, another called Frederick and Basilea. Uh, the second part of a play called Fortune's Tennis, um, one called Troilus and Cressida, which we can tell by the plot was not Shakespeare's um, play, but, um, a, you know, a, a similar one, similarly named. And my very favorite of all the plots, one uh, for the first part of a two-part play called Tamar Cham or Cam. Um, this we know uh, was played at the Rose with Henslow, so we know a little more about it. But one of the very cool things about the first part of Tamar Cham is that it lists the characters uh, that appear in the various uh, scenes. And this um, particular one ends in a, a parade of exotic characters, Amazons, olive-colored moors, the people of Cathay, Crimea, and Bactria. So we know there was this giant uh, procession uh, at the end of the play because the plot tells us that. And otherwise, the only thing we'd know about it was, oh, there was Tamburlaine by Marlowe, and then there were the two parts of Tamar Cham, but we don't know anything about them. Well, yeah, we do know something about one of them. Um, and when these plots name the actors, assign the actors to the parts, then, you know, it's a whole new uh, escalation. So those are a couple of the uh, historical documents, but then there are also personal papers. Simon Foreman, whom you'll remember, was that um, physician, uh, part wizard, part sexual predator uh, from the 1600s. 
who attended plays. He went to the Rose Playhouse and wrote up a couple of plays that he saw there. But he's best known in Shakespeare circles for having seen three of Shakespeare's plays, Macbeth, Winter's Tale, and Cymbeline, uh, at the Globe in 1611. But he also saw a play called Richard the Two, number two. And everyone, if we didn't have Foreman, would have said, oh, well, he saw Shakespeare as Richard II. But he described what he saw, and what he described is not Shakespeare's play. So we know it's a lost, not clone, but duplicate uh, of Richard II. In other words, the King's Man had more than one play on Richard II, and one of them was by Shakespeare, and one of them wasn't. So that's a lot of fun, that kind of interaction across companies, repertories, and so on is is one of the things that finding out about lost plays can tell us. In your research into lost plays, what have been some of the more surprising places to discover this information about plays that plays that are now lost? Well, I, I expect to find them uh, in um, the Revels Office uh, records and the Stationers Register in various letters like the Chamberlain letter that I was talking to you about a minute ago. Uh, but what is disappointing is how many places where there might be plays where there aren't. The most obvious example is the Reed records. The Reed records are, you know, must be in the millions by now. Uh, and yet um, there's not a single mention that I know of of a play title that we can connect with the London Playhouse at all. And since the London companies went on tour and are reflected, those tours are reflected in the Reed records, you'd hope that somebody would mention it. And there's a, a couple of incidents where you think this would have been the perfect time for someone to name the play, but they don't. For example, the Queen's Men in 1583 go uh, on tour. They go to Norwich. They get in a scuffle uh, during the presentation of a play. Um, uh, the players run down off of the stage, chase the um, troublemaker. Uh, a man is killed. Uh, men are imprisoned. And no one says what play was on while this uh, incident took place. There's one other instance where we can put a player's letter, uh, John Allen taught writing to his wife, uh, excuse me, Edward Allen writing to his wife, saying that they're going to put on a play called Harry of Cornwall when they're at Bristol, but the Bristol records say nothing about what play is put on. So we have one other name, one name that I know of, of a London play that was put on in the provinces. I'd like to find them in Wills. I don't know of a will where uh, a player, playwright lists, here are the things that are in my uh, outbox as I die. So uh, Thomas Nash um, is an example of an author who mentions the Isle of Dogs, a lost play that got in uh, a real set to in London. Um, but um, normally um, uh, even Haywood doesn't mention all of the plays that he wrote. He mentioned some, but not all. I'm surprised as well that you don't see them show up in wills. You would think that would be property, but I guess that goes back to the idea of, you know, who owns the written word and the and the change that happened, I think, in in authorship and certainly in 
things, concepts of things like plagiarism and, and ownership of words, I think was, was different. So that, that may play into that a little bit, but given that the no, the lost plays no longer exist to study them in depth or, or even to adapt them into performances today, what does it look like to research a lost play? What's the process there when you're researching essentially a ghost? Right, right. Well, obviously, you start at libraries, um, and the British Library and the Folger, you know, are uh, are the first places to think of. But uh, these days, we are enormously aided by digital sources, Ebo TCP, uh, where you can simply pu- plug in a tag, and if we have the title, like, um, you know, uh, give a man luck and throw him into the sea, uh, which is a play that is lost. You can see what other contexts that phrase turns up in, and that uh, may or may not give you an insight into what the play might have been about, but it will at least expand our knowledge of that particular popular saying and uh, what sort of circumstances and maybe some uh, letter or some you know other textual uh, context it might have showed up. Uh, that gives us a chance to say something about it. We devised on the website categories that enable us to be really very tentative. In fact, we try to say almost nothing factual about Lost Place except their titles and what dates are associated with them and so on. But we put in a couple of uh, categories. uh, My favorite one is one we call For What It's Worth, where you can put in something that might be relevant, Maybe not today, but maybe with the discovery of something else, it might turn out that there's an association between X um, uh, document and a lost play. So I think that uh, is a lot of fun uh, to have. It really feels like it's a whole, you can see a detective show, you know, I'm mapping this out where they've got the big pinboard on the wall and they're drawing these connections between different things to to draw conclusions. It's like your lost play detectives and I, I like it a lot. <laughs> Let me mention one other thing too. There's of course a body of poetry, a lot of it narrative poetry and for a, a play that's called Owen Tudor that we do not have the play for, we do have uh, in in one of the uh, uh, poems of Michael Drayton, you know, the love letters between Catherine, the widow of Henry V, and Owen Tudor. And so we get some kind of fix. We have to put it in for what it's worth, but some kind of fix on what the popular narrative about that romance might have been. And it would be silly if the play didn't have anything like that in it, because, you know, it was too much of a popular event. Yeah. It's just part of the story. Right. Exactly. Now, E.K. Chambers argued that Shakespeare's play Taming of the Shrew was once called Love's Labors One, and that scholars studying early modern plays actually thought for a long time that Love's Labors One was a lost play until they discovered there was a copy of it available all along. Does this kind of mix up between the naming of plays and the historical record about them happen often with lost plays where you find something that you didn't connect before? Absolutely. Um, In fact, this has been a deterrent for the field. I mean, who 15 years ago said, why don't we spend our time on lost plays? And they didn't because the idea was that the lost plays are really found just by another title somewhere. And that we call that contemptuously lumping where a play 
that is lost gets lumped with a play that exists in order to, you know, make some a historical point or a theatrical point that, in fact, isn't justified by anything other than the desire of the scholar uh, to um, find, you know, a lost play in, in one that exists. Um, from the very start, uh, Edmund Malone, who was the first to uh, transcribe the playlist in Henslow's diary and his notes to something that he he quite often would tag a play and say, this is probably X play or this is probably Y play. John uh, uh, Payne Collier comes along and argues some with um, Malone, but more often uh, exaggerates. Uh, not only is the play such and such, it must be such and such. So he often, and F.G. Flea, or Flay, however you pronounce his name, was the worst. Uh, he had almost all of, well, it seems like, of Henslow's plays uh, found somewhere in the writings of Thomas Haywood. So um, <laughs> he loved to do that. Well, might there be lost plays by Shakespeare, but we just don't know anything about them? Are there additional ones out there we're going to find someday? Oh, I, I think absolutely so. But then I'm a radical on this subject. So you've got to take me with a grain of salt. But consider this. You look at what we've already said. Thomas Haywood claims to have written 220 plays. We can look at Henslow's diary and see how many plays in just um, a two or three year period uh, a Henry Chettle wrote or uh, Thomas Decker wrote. And they were with Henslow's companies, but they weren't also always actors as well as dramatists as well and company owners and all that. Shakespeare was. What does it then mean for him to have written two or three plays a year when these guys are writing six, eight, ten, and fifteen? As scholars have answered that by saying, oh, well, his are so much better. So he didn't need to write so many plays or his took longer or you know all that artistic so on but if he's a company member why is he not writing more than two or three plays a year for his own company it comes down to what do what is the responsibility of someone who is a company dramatist is it to you know give a, a few plays a year or is it to pretty much write continuously um, Shakespeare's probably somewhere in between. As I say, I'm, I'm a radical. I, I live in the fringe on this. I can't see why he wouldn't write. That's what he liked to do. And if he's not doing poetry, uh, oh, I need to in play. So I think there are other things. And we do find now, uh, really among the early period, not after 1600, that the Oxford Shakespeare, for example, includes Arden of Feversham and Edward III as uh, Shakespearean plays. Uh, but that gets into the whole authorship question, and you probably don't want to go that far afield. But um, there probably are additions, additions to plays, maybe plays lost, that Shakespeare contributed uh, to his company repertory. And because the texts are lost, we've lost all that, too. We are staunchly Stratfordian, as they say, here on that Shakespeare life. So we do, <laughs> we do support the... Uh, that Shakespeare was Shakespeare and he wrote the plays that we think he did. But I'm excited by this question of his professionalism and certainly the concept of there being an industry standard you would expect him to adhere to. And the fact that his collection of plays we know about are 
not just a little bit less, but as you point out, that's a significant discrepancy between his known peers. So if we give him the credit of being the the star of his field, like we uh, write about, we think he was during his lifetime, it, it is a notable oddity that his workload is so much less than than those he's working with and around that's that's an interesting question and i'm i think i'm going to side with you here in terms of i certainly hope that there are lost plays out there for shakespeare that we just haven't found yet i i will look forward to those being discovered uh, may i mention one other person uh, marlowe we have uh, only one lost play i think by marlowe but he also had a period of time, uh, two, three, four years of when he was writing. And why do we only have four, five, six plays from him? I think there's some lost Marlowe plays out there, too. I but think I, I think I'm, all of my Marlovian friends there that are huge fans of him are, are just excited to know about that, that there's there's some more of. <laughs> of his out there as well. Now, I know that we would love to explore Lost Plays further, and obviously Lost Plays Database is a great place to begin when you want to look into this subject, but I wonder if you could recommend some books and resources for us that would be reliable places to start if we want to dive into this history further. As a matter of fact, yes. All three of, all four of us who are editors of the Lost Place Database have been, uh, you know, writing that Lost Place for a while, and the first thing I would recommend for someone just dabbling in this uh, is an article by me and David N. McInnes, uh that it was published in uh, Medieval and Renaissance um, uh, Drama in, in England in 2011. Uh, it's called Lost Plays Database, a wiki for lost plays. And I recommend that first because it's kind of the birth narrative. How did we come to do this? Uh, and for, so for someone who wants to know about uh, how the database uh, came into being, that would be the first place to look. Then David has himself written a book on Shakespeare and lost plays that came out in 2021 under with, from Cambridge University Press. Matt Stiegel has a book that shows you how to use Ebo and digital resources uh, to find lost plays, that's called Digital Humanities and the Lost Drama of Early Modern England, 10 Case Studies. It was published by Ashgate in 2015. And um, David and Matt and uh, other uh, editors have a couple of books from conference, a collection of conference papers. Lost Plays in Shakespeare's England is one of those. Uh, then there are a couple of articles I can recommend uh, if you want me to add more. Uh, but um, I haven't mentioned Misha, who is our latest addition to the editorial staff. And he's got an essay called Brute Parts that is in um, one of Matt and David's uh, collection of essays, Lost Plays in Shakespeare's England, where he talks about the interplay of Greco-Roman and Native English prehistory uh, as complementary narratives for the birth of England by way of lost plays. It's really a cool article, so I recommend that. 
Ebo for the uninitiated is early English books online and is along with Lost Plays database a really great resources for diving into this part of history. And if you're interested in taking your own role as a Lost Play detective and looking into this part of the past, these are good places to plug in. We will place direct links to the resources Rosalind mentions here, so you can go there uh, straight away and find them easily from the show notes for today's episode. And we'll also include some of the extras and article recommendations. Rosalind will get with you after the show to make sure that we include all of those bonuses. Um, I think you've set people up really great here to, to explore this further. And we appreciate that. Now we ask everyone this next question here at that Shakespeare life. And that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted Island. My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Well, I have to say Henslow's Diary. It is the most precious book to me on my shelf. It has enabled me to have a career in doing what I do. And uh, there are lots of parts of it that I really haven't looked at closely. So um, I'm pretty familiar with the playlist, but not with everything else. And he really is documenting in that the playhouse world. And so I think I would have a lot to look at just in him. I think that is a, an excellent selection. I've I've limited exposure to Hensler's diary. I've looked at it for various research things, and I find it fascinating because there's always little details that you just never expected. You're like, what? They had a what now? You know, I think everything from animals to props to plays and things that they pay for. It's it's a good selection. He rented out clothes. He had a side business that we called, you know, some sort of you know, a secondhand shop. So, you know, he's not just a playhouse guy. He did. He did a lot of things. I think you'd be well set up on your deserted Island with that selection for sure. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Oh, well, I'm just more of the same. I'm afraid a a boring answer, but uh, every time I get on the web with the lost place database, I see some feature of it, I've been lately looking at the 1570s because of the Revels accounts are so particular there. And, and I hadn't thought much about the 1570s when really the Playhouse business is getting a serious economic foothold in London. So I'm um, just looking at, at decades, collections within the Lost Plays that I hadn't paid that much attention to before always sends me into new new territory. Well, as much fun as we've had looking at this part of the Lost Plays, I know that we'll look forward to seeing what you uncover as you do more historical sleuthing through the Lost Plays of early modern England. Rosalind Knudsen, thank you so much for being here today and walking us through the history of Lost Plays and helping us step into this part of Shakespeare's history. I appreciate you being here. This was a fun conversation. My pleasure. If you like the show today, please be sure to let us know about it. Drop us a comment and a rating on the platform you're listening from today. If you would like to see more information on the history of lost plays, including more information on some of the plays we think we know Shakespeare wrote, but we don't have any further information on today, you can check out the show notes for today's episode. The show notes are where you can find visual content that coordinates with the history you're learning about today, along with bonus resources, research suggestions, and advice from our guests on where you can start for reliable information when you want to dive into the history you're learning about on the show further. We've got you all set up with links and books and all kinds of bonuses packed over in the show notes for today's episode. Find all of these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 260. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP 260. 
If you think walking around the inside of a 16th century playhouse sounds like your idea of a great afternoon, then you would enjoy hanging out with us over on Patreon, where we dive even further into the history of the life of William Shakespeare and turn of the 17th century England the way he would have lived it. There are over 150 additional episodes of That Shakespeare Life available in our back catalog. You can listen to as many as you want from the patrons-only RSS feed on Patreon. In addition to our back catalog, you also get behind-the-scenes extras, sneak peeks at upcoming guests, visual history guides that coordinate with our show, and so many other extras. Find out more and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learned something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.